From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. Aside from being the go-to event for new furniture debuts, High Point Market has become a destination for designer education. The Universal Learning Center returns to Spring Market with a lineup of sessions offering the tools and tips required to run a successful design practice today. Preview the event schedule and reserve your seat at universalfurniture.com slash market events. That's universalfurniture.com slash market events. And now, on with the show. Since opening his first multi-line showroom more than 40 years ago, David Sutherland has had a front row seat to industry shifts and emerging opportunities. The Dallas-based entrepreneur is a pioneer of the outdoor furniture category and along with his wife Anne, launched performance fabric maker Perennials. How did we do that? I don't know. I always say, well, it takes 23 years to become an overnight success. So (laughs) (laughs) just doing it day after day and, and sticking with the plan. I sat down with the industry veteran to get his take on selling direct-to-consumers, partnering with Restoration Hardware, and the state of the multi-line showroom. Let's talk about when you first got started in the industry and and how different things were. So so tell us when you you first opened uh, a showroom in in, in Texas and and what the landscape was like there. I got my first base in, in Houston in 1978, and in 1980 we opened our Uh, first showroom in Dallas. Okay. And uh, I had had success with two previous companies uh, representing uh, New York firms like Yale Burge, uh, DeGaulle and Walker, P.E. Guerin, uh, Cheryl Wagner. Uh All of them were very, very high in lines. And my theory from the very beginning was I always wanted to sell one $10,000 item instead of 10 $1,000 items. It just seemed to make sense that uh, uh, if the quality justified it and uh, the designs were uh, pretty terrific that uh, that you could uh, could do well at that end of the business. And so I went into the business uh, uh, representing the very highest ends uh, of products that were available at the time. If I had to say I had a mentor in our industry, it would be Angelo Dangia because I met him early on in my career and... Uh, I was actually his first rep anywhere in the country. We had the first display of, of Dongia furniture anywhere in the world. Mm. Angelo was uh, as good a businessman and a promoter as he was a designer, but he was a, a terrific man. And uh, the industry lost a lot when, when he passed away. Yes. When I found this uh, warehouse, Angelo had just opened a warehouse in Los Angeles. Uh, on the corner of San Vicente and Melrose. And uh, it was just a warehouse outside. It was close to the design center, but it was uh, not in the design center. And I found a similar building in Dallas, and I told him about it, and I said, uh, ask him if he would help me with the design of the building. And uh, when I showed him the floor plan, he said, I'd be happy to help you with the design, but he said, I'd like this corner over here, which was a third of the showroom, (laughs) for my new furniture line. And I said, what furniture line? And he said, it'll be ready when your showroom is. And sure enough, uh, about nine months later, the, he had to air freight the samples in, but we had a full display. Uh, Angelo was uh, very crucial to the beginning of my, uh, of my career because he helped me 
uh, turn this warehouse into a, a really beautiful place that designers, uh, frankly, had they not traveled out of Texas, would have been very impressed with because it had that New York sort of flair to it, which was uh-huh, okay. inspiring, to say the least. Right. So... So you were running a couple of showrooms, and uh, and then how did the how did the business develop from there? In the late '80s, I had a an outdoor furniture company that I represented asked me if I would do international marketing for them. And frankly, Texas was in the doldrums; we couldn't sell dollars for a nickel. Okay. And um, so I said sure, and um, I went about uh, helping this company develop its uh, international footprint and. I learned about the sourcing for uh, teak furniture. I realized that that the outdoor furniture business, while it was a good business, it it was more about benches. It was more about uh, a place to sit for a moment. It was about a place to have a cup of coffee, not read a book. Right. And uh, so I felt that uh, the outdoors actually could become sort of another room in the house Mm. if they approached it that way and one of the ways to do that was through furniture and I asked uh, uh, John Hutton who was the design director at at Dongia to uh, help me with it and he was excited to I asked him if he would design a collection of outdoor furniture for me and and he was very excited he said but we have to get uh, Michael Sorrentino's uh, permission because he was president of Dongia at the time right okay and so um we went in and had a meeting with uh, with uh, Michael. He was very happy to hear that I wanted to uh, to engage John uh, in a in a non competitive way that would uh, add to John's income and that he didn't have to come up with. <laughs> <coughs> so um, uh, he said, "I'm I'm tickled to death to to give you John for this project." And he said, "But I have one request." And I said, "What's that?" And he said, "I want to represent you in all of my." showrooms and at that time Dongia had six of their own showrooms around the country I okay. still represented Dongia in Texas in okay. Dallas and Houston and so I was going to have my that product in my showroom in conjunction with both Dongia and with Sutherland Outdoor Furniture got it okay so um, that was kind of how the, the the furniture company started and when you say how did we transition I just felt that uh, throughout my career early career, it was the, the representative business was a cash flow business. It wasn't something that was going to allow me to provide for retirement or provide for my children uh, uh, once I'm gone. It, it wasn't a legacy. It wasn't something that I could pass on. Surely I have children, but I right. don't, uh, none, of, none of my children uh, really were interested in the industry. So mm, okay. I um, started the Sutherland Company because I felt that it was necessary to to build equity in something, to uh, to create a value that went on beyond my own everyday efforts. Okay. And so uh, when I asked John to help, I didn't realize, but I said, uh, John, it, it, most of his products, seating products, required a lot of cushions. And um, he said, well, David, he said, really, this is Dongia furniture without any clothes on. And so I thought that was kind of interesting because... Uh, he said it helped him become a better frame designer. Ah, uh, but he did require cushions for everything, and right. the only product that was available in the market was uh, was umbrella, which was uh, at that time geared toward marinas and awnings and 
the fabrics were hard. They were primary colors. There was nothing. Uh, there was no hand to them. Yeah, yeah, they, uh, were, they were pretty rough. They were pretty rough. Yeah. So when my wife Ann and I got married, she said, "What am I going to do? Just follow you around?" And I said, "Well, no. I, I have this idea." I said, "Let's see what we can do with it." And uh, because John's furniture required so much fabric, we kind of saw an opening in the marketplace and realized that if we could provide a durable fabric for outdoor furniture, that it would be uh, it would be a good thing to do. And it was something we wanted to do for our own needs, not right. necessarily because right. we felt there was a broader audience. That was something we fell into later. But um, when we started, 95%, 99% of our sales were to ourselves, um, just for our own furniture. You were sort of starting to sort of revolutionize outdoor furniture. That's really what the David Sutherland line was, was about, right? Well, it was. It, was, um, uh, it, it became apparent early on that, uh, that to expand the designer's uh, influence within a house would be both profitable for them and an, an arena for us uh, that could be profitable as well. Uh, when I first started in the industry, it was not unusual to have a $100,000 great room and then have your plastic chairs out around the pool. <laughs> and, you right. know, you'd look from one to the other, and it was kind of a letdown. And yeah. uh, so uh, I, I actually, when I was going through the process, didn't realize the impact we were having. Right. As I look back, I realized that uh, that we really did sort of uh, start an entire industry, if you will, because um, the idea of indoor-outdoor wasn't, wasn't even a glimmer in anyone's eyes. It was just... Yeah. Uh, but but we felt, uh, I asked John one time why he, he designed things that were very low. He said, I don't want anybody to see my furniture. I don't want furniture to, be, to take away right. from nature. Yeah. And it made complete sense to me then. And uh, in developing the Perennials collection, our influence was from nature. The color palette that we've developed was from nature. It's been really a, a wonderful thing to see uh, the industry that part of the industry grow and it has grown significantly it's been a dramatically yeah it's 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 been a real lifesaver for uh, for us certainly over the years in in terms of what exactly so it, did that help to sort of smooth out some of the ups and downs of it the other helped businesses? to smooth out the ups and downs oftentimes uh, in a downturn people won't buy furniture but they'll recover it mm -hmm. or they'll recover their cushions yeah um, it helped to smooth things out because it created a a cash flow where uh, I not only was supportive of my own products, but I was supportive of the companies and lines I represented. Mm -hmm. I was much more of a good partner for them because I was more financially stable. Right. And uh, so, so the combination of all of those things is they've all worked together. Everything I've done has been an evolution, not a revolution. Mm -hmm. It's been I started with the showrooms, went to the furniture had the fabrics to augment that, and now we're getting ready to go, not getting ready to, we've been in the rug business now for right. uh, about five years. Well, and that's one <clears> of the <throat> things that you that you did so effectively with, with Perennials. So, it, so it's so interesting to me that Perennials was developed out of just your own internal needs with the furniture originally. Hey, we need some better materials. What Sumbrella was making at the time was, was not highly desirable and, and didn't feel like luxury, right? So you and, and now Anne, your your wife. Let's 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 give her a, a great deal of credit in this as well. Um, and and had an interior design background. Yes, she was an interior designer. Uh, she lived in Oklahoma City, and um, she was a great customer of my showroom. 
she had never designed products before. She was a, an interior designer, not a product designer. But she loves products, and she particularly loved uh, perennials. And in developing and nurturing this small thing to become a much bigger thing, and uh, she's just been the driving force behind this for sure. And uh, it's kudos to her for uh, where it is and and how it got there. So you had your multi-line showrooms, and and I'm assuming that was sort of the traditional multi-line model. Yes, the various lines that were in your space would be paying you a commission, and right? And exactly right. Exactly. And, and then you and then the furniture line started to to really grow in in scale and and went other other places beyond your own showroom. When did that start to happen? When did the furniture start to go into other people's showrooms? As the thing that really has. Uh, has really taken us to a new level is the ability to uh, cross over into the retail market with restoration hardware. Mm. Um, Gary Friedman called me uh, and asked one day if um, if we would do a special line of fabrics for them, and uh, obviously we were interested. Uh, my first question to him is, "When are you going to quit knocking off my furniture?" <laughs> And, um, which was a real issue. Which was a real issue because uh, one of my, our most popular collections is now one of his most popular. But, you know, my question to myself was, uh, you know, do I, uh, do I create a big fuss over this and, and try to get something, uh, some sort of satisfaction through the courts or do I yeah. sell him product? And I decided to sell him product, okay. which was obviously a much better uh, uh, solution. But Gary realized very early on he uh, has great taste. He's a great uh, editor. He knows what he wants. Um, he had been a customer of ours before with Perennials, and he felt like Perennials could uh, could give him uh, a little cachet within the interior design community as well. Mm. One of the reasons that I... Uh, decided to go with Restoration Hardware, was a, a designer in um, Los Angeles, uh, had a huge job, and it was a six-figure job of, of outdoor furniture for the downstairs pool. And there was an upstairs pool as well, and he said there'd be a similar order coming in about six months. And so I saw him six months later, and I said, well, what happened to the, to the upper deck pool? And he said, my client just told me to go to Restoration Hardware and buy it. So that said a couple of things. Number one, it said that uh, the client wasn't as interested in the pool at the top as they were at the one at the bottom. (laughs) Right. But number two, the client didn't fight for me. Yeah. The client just went out and bought the furniture. Right. And so it wasn't a matter of the client being able to say to their client, but hey, this stuff's going to last a lot longer. There are differences. Here's why you want this product and maybe not this product. And so it, it, it dawned on me that you know, for all the complaining designers were doing, designers were using as much restoration hardware as they were my own things. Mm. And so it just seemed like uh, all bets were kind of off right. at that point. Okay. And I knew I could differentiate my products. So design is what we are all about. So right. uh, I could differentiate what, uh, what restoration hardware has with what we have. Uh, that was fairly easy to do. And I was concerned about offending the, the design community when I went to Restoration Hardware, but frankly, there has, there has only been one complaint in the uh, eight years that we've been associated with Restoration Hardware. And so uh, I, I consider that uh, pretty much 
confirmation of the fact that uh, the designers have moved away from the uh, from the multi-line showrooms. Yeah. So you decided that that rather than sort of sort of go after him about the furniture, let, let let's do business together. And he and he wanted to talk to you about about fabrics. Yes, and it was uh, it was early on, and uh, Gary had a vision that a lot of people didn't couldn't understand how he was going to pull it off. Big box stores were were shrinking. Uh, the uh, retail industry was uh, in difficulty, and he was attacking it like a bulldog, if you will. And yeah. So. Uh, He's um, he's created, I think, something that's very beneficial to the interior design community. I think he's raised the level of awareness uh, amongst the general population that uh, design makes a difference in your life. Mm. And uh, you can go into, uh, his his motto is, if you can go into my store and say, I could live here, then uh, then I've done my job. So what do you do for restoration hardware right, right now? We have a number of SKUs that they offer on finished goods okay and it's been very popular because again i think that restoration hardware is a is the kind of product a lot of people would use in a very elegant part of their home but it's also a product that people would use in in game rooms and mm-hmm. uh, in uh, high use areas where uh, they may want the durability that perennials provides i think gary was uh, a visionary to realize that the combination of uh, the durability and the design could uh, could be a game changer for him, and it's been a terrific uh, a terrific partnership for us. It's been it's it's actually changed uh, it's changed the focus of our business. How so? Uh, well, it's just that uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that I uh, that I I feel is necessary to the to the trade is that the products become more well known. And when the first, in the beginning, Gary only featured us in outdoor. Mm. And so the first outdoor catalog that came out was 360 pages, and we were either featured or mentioned on 306 of the pages, <laughs> times 8 million catalogs. Yeah. You simply can't buy that kind of exposure. Right. And uh, Gary also feels that it's important to align himself with people who are, with, with artisans that uh, need to have a, uh, need to have a podium mm-hmm. and so he's featured Ann with the fabrics and featured me with the furniture we do license some pieces to him okay and uh, so he's been very uh, it's been a great collaboration he's not he doesn't want to hide us behind the restor- restoration hardware brand right he wants us to be a part of the growth he wants us to be a part of the of the uh, the success yeah and uh I think this this may be something that uh, that the design industry uh, and showrooms need to uh, and manufacturers need to look at is is the idea of being a little more collaborative. Mm. Uh, I think there are other synergies within the industry that have been sort of put on the shelf in in fear of competition, but there's so much business out there now that competition is really just uh, staying the course. It's, addressing a different community through a different avenue 
it's taking a little bit of the secrecy out of it. Well, you know, and, and so, right, so that's part of the challenge. And, and, and Gary Friedman is a, is a bit of a, a, a polarizing figure, certainly within our industry, right? So some people think he's the devil and he's ruining the interior design industry and he's knocking off your furniture and everyone else's furniture and lighting and everything else. Uh, and then in some cases, he's, he's partnering with those very same people and producing special lines at a, at a lower cost, right, than they would be available in Holly Hunt's showroom or some other design showroom. Um, but he does speak consistently about the design world, the high-end design world that we're familiar with, being behind this iron curtain, as he describes it. And is right. that really doing any of us any, any good? Right. And, and so we're we're wrestling with that as a as an industry right now, trying to figure out how how do we create more awareness of the, the products that are available to interior designers um, without jeopardizing the long term partnership that we've had with interior designers and later architects, as you pointed out, uh, that have been the, the drivers of the high end interior design business for all of these years. How do we start to make that transition? One of the things that, that people are talking about is, is the pricing model, for example, right? Do we, do we start to publish the manufacturer's suggested retail price on David Sutherland teak furniture in, in your showrooms or, or the other products that are available there? Is that, does that make sense to you? Is that something that you think would be helpful or meaningful? I don't want to sound elitist here, but... Uh, my showroom and the products that I carry, Holly Hunt and the showrooms and the products that she carries, they're absolutely the finest products in the world. And a retail price really would probably scare a lot of our people to death. Mm. Um, and the capabilities that you have to make changes within those products uh, is is not available typically in the general market. Right. Uh, you can't go into restoration hardware necessarily and say, I need this four inches longer and two inches wider and one inch lower. Uh, you'd run into the same issue you had with the showrooms. It's going to take time and it's going to be more expensive. And one of the things that Gary has said from the beginning is that he wants to put showrooms like mine out of business. Yeah. Well, I think that's a little misunderstanding on his part because my showrooms offer so much more than his stores can offer. Otherwise, he's in my business, and I don't think he wants to be in our business. <laughs> I think he really wants to have the uh, sort of the panache, and he wants to he wants to have the uh, uh, the reputation of appealing only to the highest end. He certainly is at the uh, retail level, yeah. But it's still not the level at which uh, Mahali and I operate, and uh, so I think there's a there's always going to be a barrier, and I think there'll always be a barrier for art- artisanal products. It's just how we find our way in the future that's going to to make the difference. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, but we'll be right back. Learn how to scale your design practice, get your work in print, and become the ideal brand ambassador at Universal's Learning Center during High Point Market. Industry insiders Shayla Kopis, Gail Doby, Natalie Riddell, and more will be leading discussions on how to set your design business up for success. Preview the event's lineup and reserve your seat at universalfurniture.com slash market events. That's universalfurniture.com slash market events. And now, on with the show. 
You mentioned marketing, and I, and I think that one of the criticisms that the industry often gets is that collectively we, we weren't good enough marketers, right? And we, we didn't invest enough in advertising when times were good to, to sort of build the awareness uh, about the products that are available uh, at, the, at the higher end uh, and what makes them worth the price. We're in the middle of rethinking how we market, how we sell to the trade. Uh, it doesn't mean much is going to change, except that it, it's not that we want to do business with the public. It's that we want the public to know who we are. Right. So it's as much about branding as it is anything else. Uh, we stay true to the design industry. We stay true to designers and architects, and 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 we want to be in that uh, arena because they're professionals. Mm -hmm. They know what they're doing. They. Uh, for lack of a better description, they know what they're getting into. Right. Um, we offer them the freedom to make changes and finishes and uh, materials and and dimensions, and uh, we're eager to do that. But uh, the general public, uh, they might dream of something, but if it turns out to be a nightmare, they don't understand that they would still own it. Right. So, and, so, and that's always been the big hesitation, right, about opening up to the general public. Is, well, is, it's been a huge part of it, but at, at our level of the market, uh, um, designers, uh, we consider our products a lifetime purchase. Mm -hmm. So um, from a retail client, we'll, we'll get one purchase in their lifetime. From a designer, we may get four or five purchases every year. Right. So it's a repeat business, and it's an understanding of who we are and what we provide and the value we bring to their projects that uh, keeps them coming back, we hope. So yeah. it's a matter of service and quality, and, and uh, that's the arena we want to be in. We, we don't necessarily want to, uh, we don't want to sell to the public. Mm -hmm. um, we don't want to explain to them how we operate, why our lead times are long, right. why our prices are higher. But we do need for the public to have access. We need for them to have access to the, to the aspiration. We need for them to be able to come in and say, wow, this is really terrific. How can I get my hands on it? Exactly. <laughs> so that they want the products. So right, that exactly. Right? And, and that's been one of the big challenges for the, for the industry is that because so much of the product is hidden away in designer-only access buildings, the general public hasn't been able to, to develop a desire for, for the product. Yeah, when I got into the business, the, um, it was kind of a secretive business. And I kind of liked that because uh, I knew other people in the business who were successful and nobody knew what they did. And I found that very intriguing. Um, and I think that uh, I think that we've done our ourselves a disservice over a long period of time because we have remained so uh, uh, elusive yes. for the public. But the fact of the matter is uh, uh, we work with artisans. And artisans can't crank stuff out. If everybody wanted us tomorrow, we'd go out of business. Right. Uh, so, so part of the exclusivity of it is uh, wanting it to continue because most of our artisans don't have a business that you would call scalable. Um, if Restoration Hardware went to many of these suppliers of ours, they just simply could not uh, keep up with the demand. So it's, it's a kind of a self-preservation thing. I love it. I think it uh, would be a tragedy if that uh, part of the business went away. The artisanal part of the, the business. The artisanal part yeah. of the business, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there are people who, who make a lot of what we uh, 
promote and sell to interior designers who just don't want to do anything else but make beautiful things. Right. And there's something to be said for that. Yeah. They don't want to work on marketing. They don't want to work on customer service. Right. They don't want to work on all the things that the customers need. They only want to make what they want to make. Yeah. And uh, and in their own time. Yeah. So uh, it's our job to translate all of that from the artisan to the designer and ultimately to the end user. We seem to be at a, a, a major inflection point in the industry right now. Uh, Robert Allen Durley just being one of the recent sort of casualties in the in the business filing for for bankruptcy recently uh and and a lot of showrooms are downsizing their spaces right or moving out altogether ralph lauren home just moved out of the D building and that was half of the fourth floor as i don't need to tell you because that's where your showroom is also located right um and i i sort of wonder where you think we are in the industry right now. I mean, where, where do you see all of this sort of shaking out? I do think there'll be a lot of turnover. The landlords haven't helped. For the most part, they treat the trade as they would a law firm. Yeah. And uh, prices are indicative of that. Showrooms work on a commission, which gets tighter and tighter every day. Right. But I do believe that the, the service and the quality that high-end showrooms offer, it may mean that they coalesce somewhere else together. Mm -hmm. It may be that they're not where they are today, but they'll find a place to be. I'm hopeful that that's the case. So does that mean that you're not not sure you think design centers are sort of a a long-term model or? I think that that could be one of the changes that comes about in the next few years. But as this transition occurs, leases have to be honored. Right. Um, Commitments have to be, have to be made. I never understood the Robert Allen Duralee thing because just as an outsider, uh, both of them had extensive lines of products, and it just seemed to me like they were putting two inventories together that just made a bigger inventory that was harder to manage. Yeah, uh, I couldn't quite see the symbiotic relationship that I would have expected there. There are ups and downs in every industry, and some of these things that we're seeing are just natural. The natural evolution. The natural yeah. evolution, yeah. And, and and some of these companies might have gotten too too big or there wasn't enough to distinguish. Or, uh, exactly. Have you found a way over the years since you've, since you've been in business, since the, since the 70s, have you found an indicator that's reliable for you to tell you, hey, things really are turning down and maybe I do need to scale back a little bit? What, have you seen warning signs along the way that have told you a, a turning point is really happening? No, and that's probably okay. that's probably <laughs> got to work on that. Got to <laughs> got to figure out what that is. That's probably the most disconcerting thing about this time today. Now, right? And in, in two thousand eight, you knew sales were off. Yes, right. Um, that happened pretty dramatically. That happened pretty, very yeah. dramatically. Yeah. And what we're in now is sort of a, a muddy area. Uh, nobody knows exactly what's happening and and why. And uh, it's it can be much more. Uh, it, it can be scarier to be in this kind of an environment because uh, uh, you can bet that whatever, however long it takes to really settle in, um, it's going to, it's going to take a lot longer than just the lack of sales Mm. to see how this industry is going to change and to see how the companies are going to have to change. I was very distressed to hear that Destin Fenier closed their Chicago and New York showrooms. Chuck Como, yeah. (laughs) Um, I I repped uh, Chuck in Texas for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's uh, when you see something like that happen, that to me had more impact than the uh, Robert Allen Durley mm, right. uh, situation because uh, that 
that's a company that operates at the very highest level. Sure. So, um, and was a model for so many people, really. I mean, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I don't. I, and I don't know what to attribute that to. I don't know. I don't know what the reason is why uh, why they've had issues. But uh, uh, you know, to lose a company like that would be a uh, would be a real travesty f- at yeah. the high end, right? At the at yeah, the yeah. level and the people that I that I work with. And then there are a lot of companies that are getting to a point of transition, uh, just simply because of age. And you wonder what's their future going forward. You know, Cedric Hartman is in his 80s mm. in Omaha. Right. He makes the most beautiful lamps and the most beautiful tables yeah. on the planet. What's going to happen to that business? Uh, what's going to happen to J. Robert Scott when Sally retires? If she, I don't think she'll well, ever another retire. Another one who, right, who'll have but, to be carried out. But, but yes. you know, just like me, we've, well, uh, we've decided we're going to be carried out. Exactly. So, uh, now, was that part of the agreement with Bertram? Is they ultimately you'll be carried out? In, I will be carried end? out. That's okay. right. That's yeah. right. Um, but... Um, yeah, I think that the, this is a period of transition. Uh, Webster, David Webster, and yes, in also Boston is is uh, closing, closing up. Yeah, <clears throat> and you don't see a lot of new uh, people at the showroom level coming in because the showroom business is a tougher business. Yeah, um, it's tougher because your margins are set, and uh, you know just because. Uh, you'd like to sell something for less doesn't mean you can yeah or that you can raise the price that that doesn't you don't have any say so over that either so uh, well and as you said earlier your 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 fixed costs are are very high right now exactly rents are very high and uh, and it, and it's hard to, to cover that that monthly rent in, no question especially in a multi-line showroom but even if you've got your own showroom it's uh, it, it, it's it's not easy, and you know you mentioned wanting to have offices to have more of your outside salespeople. That's a very different dynamic than we had just 10, 15 years ago. Now you have to have so many more outside salespeople because people aren't coming to you in the way they were. You absolutely have to do that. If you're not willing to invest in outside salespeople, I think you're really uh, doing yourself a disservice because uh, uh, designers uh, don't take as much time to go to showrooms. Um, it's uh, no, that's something that uh, that is a given for the future. If you don't have people out there uh, sweeping customers into the showroom, or at least finding out projects they're working on and and uh, being able to fulfill those needs, uh, you you you're falling behind. Yeah, yeah. If so many of these companies are stumbling now in what is still a, a, a pretty good time for for business. What's going to happen if we if we do have a little bit of a of a stumble here? And and certainly we're ten years into a recovery. It's not unlikely that that slowdown is is imminent. And how you plan for that, I have no clue. <sighs> Don't tell me that. I'm looking to you <laughs> for guidance on it. I'm thinking you're the sage of the industry. You're gonna you're gonna tell us how to plan for that. What a nice compliment. Thank you. Well, but, uh, no, it's um, we wake up in a different world every day. Things happen that affect us from miles away mm. and uh, in different industries. And so I think it's just uh, staying aware, staying uh, involved, improving your networks. I think all of that is absolutely necessary to, to continue on through this. Everybody is concerned, and I'm, I'm wondering, I know that 
just recently, you you have brought on a new financial partner. So so several years back, uh, you you partnered with with Acacia, right? Who who provided right. uh, some some funding for your operations and and became a, a partner of, of yours. Yes, exactly. And uh, and and I don't know if they had a specific timeline for their investment but you've but you've just you've just brought on a new partner Bertram uh, just the beginning of this year right well uh, yes in uh, December of 2015 we uh, we had a transaction we took on a private equity partner they um, allowed Ann and I to uh, take some money off the table and be secure in our in our retirement when and if that happens <laughs> and hard uh, to imagine but okay exactly <laughs> Um, the design, the uh, the uh, PE firm was uh, an Austin firm. We had people in Boston and New York interested in us, but uh, uh, we like the guys in Austin, and okay. they turned out to be terrific partners. And uh, they felt it was important that they, uh, once we had reached certain financial goals, that they move on. Okay. And um, so they were. They and we were fortunate in that the growth of the company during those years allowed them to exit the investment in three years very successfully. Mm -hmm. And uh, to another private equity firm who is more interested in, uh, frankly, has deeper pockets. Right. They've been in business for a lot longer. Okay. Uh, they have a lot of supportive elements of their firm. Uh, they have a, a group called the Bertram Labs, which helps with marketing and IT and all sorts of uh, aspects of the business that everybody's interested in. Right. We'll continue to have uh, involvement from private equity firms for as long as we can. Ann and I still retain uh, ownership. Okay. We still are the managers. Right. Okay. And um, what uh, what our new alliance I hope will help us do is to uh, uh, double or triple the growth of the company in the next three to five years. So really, is it, now is that really the projected goals? Yeah, yeah. Our, our first partners tripled their investment in three years. So wow, it's okay. um, sorry, you I know, it's, on getting in on that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the first to say that as an entrepreneur, I I I was good at starting the business, but not particularly good at growing the business. Okay, because if there was something I wanted to do, I just did it. I didn't consider return on investment. Right. I didn't consider all of the parameters and the, the KPIs and yes. all of this other sort of stuff right. that's very When important. were you introduced to KPIs? Yeah. When, when the money team showed up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh -huh. <laughs> but, uh, you know, priority. these people have very professional ways of looking at things. Yes, and, they uh, like to measure. Yeah, and I've been uh, very disappointed in the things, the opportunities we've missed. I've been disappointed in uh, a, a number of, of things that have happened because... The wheels in that world don't move as fast as they did when I just said do it. So what did you present as the landscape to Bertram when they were looking at, at this investment? What, how did you describe what you saw the opportunities to, to be and, 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 and what the environment was like? In the, in the, I mean, it seems like you're very optimistic if you're thinking that, that things might, might triple again for this next investor. Many people don't see the landscape in, in, in that same way right now. Yeah, that's a really good question. We just take a look at, uh, at the landscape, and we think that in terms of acceptance of solution dyed acrylic as a performance fabric, we think that that's in a very, very earliest stages of adoption by the general public. As a representative of other lines, I know that uh, 
any fabric company that I represent who doesn't have a performance category mm. is uh, their sales are down. Is missing an opportunity. They're missing an opportunity. Getting back to the question about Bertram, so the perennials business seems to be the, the big driver. It's the big engine. Okay. Yes, it is. Okay. Yes, right. Okay, so that's that's where you see the, the big opportunity. Performance Fabric has has only begun to to take market share, in your opinion. That's right. And and that, that and and do you think that that ultimately all fabrics are going to have some performance element to them at, at some point? Is that just going to have to happen? Or no? Okay. No, I think okay, they'll. Cool. Always be a fabulous. There'll always be a market for a, a beautiful wools and silks, and uh, right. Uh, we represent some of the most beautiful carpet and rug and fabric houses in the world, and and you just cannot deny the beauty uh, yeah. that uh, many of these companies bring. And uh, no, I don't see this taking over at all. But I do see that a greater number of the population mm. that this is going to be something that's viable. Okay, so so that but that's the big that's the big growth engine. It sounds like going forward, and the and the multi-line business, which is has so many inherent challenges to it, seems to still be doing well for you, and and is another focus of, of growth. Yes, it is doing well for me. Uh, for instance, in my Dallas showroom, at one time I represented eighty lines. We're now represent thirty five and we're doing more business. Hmm. So what we have done is take the approach that we want partnerships, and we want partnerships with firms that are that uh, want to grow, that want to be a part, that they're not just out there isolated in some little small town hoping to make a sale every now and then. Right. We're trying to align ourselves with partners who can make a contribution and to whom we can help as well. And it's definitely a two-way street. I mean, uh, uh, there are manufacturers in the industry are who are sort of hard-headed if you will and their way or the highway right and uh, again as i said earlier i think to get ahead in this in this future that it's it's going to have to be more collaborative people are going to have to understand that they're not islands in a storm mm. they really need to uh, they really need to look to what are other people doing that's working and how can i be a part of that so it's just being open to opportunity, yeah, and staying true to the to the course. And really, true to the course just means quality and good service. Those are the two most two most important things. And and continuing to to sort of represent products that are highly distinguishable from things that are available at, at retail. To our earlier conversation, absolutely, no right. question about it. No right. question about it. Yeah. And, and yet, at the same time, uh, we, we were talking earlier about uh, possibly looking at street-level locations here in New York and, and maybe elsewhere as well as, as a way to, to raise the level of awareness, if nothing else, right? Exactly. And, and actually, even just to provide another office for more salespeople. We've been looking down in lower Manhattan. Mm. We haven't decided on a location as yet. The only finished product that we make in perennials now is our rugs. That may be an area where we can work with the public and the design trade yeah. and offer something that uh, somebody can walk out with and not just wish they could get. Right. Well, and that's part of the challenge of working with the general public is the unfinished product that you mostly sell, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. In terms of uh, the fabrics, we don't sell a finished product. So someone has to take it somewhere and yeah. do something with it. And uh, 
that's why we admire and stick with the design community because they're professionals. They know what they're doing. And when do you think we're likely to see this street level location in New York? I would think that a, a commitment will be made by the end of the year. Okay. And probably have a facility somewhere first quarter of next year. Okay. We're intent on doing it. It's just a matter of finding the right place. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that's, that's very interesting, and we'll look for that, and we'll, we'll check back in with you then to, to see what you think, and hopefully business will still be, be strong, and we'll, we'll, we'll still be in this expansion that we've been enjoying for the last 10 years. Is so. there any wood here? Can we not? Yes, exactly. <laughs> touch, touch that right there. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much for joining us, David. Uh, my guest has been David Sutherland, the chairman of the vast David Sutherland Enterprises. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, tell a friend about the show, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again to our sponsor and our producers. You can find us at businessofhome.com or on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week.